Good to be back with you. If I look tired, it's just a mirage. I'm energized to be here. It's a joy to gather under God's word. And we always have to be reminded of the reality that it is not this way for the saints around the world. Uh, Many gather together under great peril, uh, in great danger. Uh, Not sure if someone will bust through the door. So we we should be grateful and also be prayerful uh, for the brothers and sisters around the world. I'm just reminded of that when these sweet gatherings happen, uh, that we ought to be grateful in that way. We are going to continue this evening through uh, Jonah and this This evening's passage is going to come from Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. And I'm going to read this now. This is God's word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would join me in prayer. Lord, we are grateful. We are grateful for this opportunity that we have to hear of your saving love for us in Jesus Christ. We are grateful that you do not leave us in the dark, but you reveal yourself. 
You draw near to your people. You love us in this way. You care to instruct us. So Lord, we pray that you would have your way right now. I pray that you would take my five loaves and two fish and feed your people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I entered into full-time ministry, I worked in show business. I was doing Broadway kind of stuff. And I had to go off and get training in order to prepare for a life in show business. And when you go off and you begin to train to do the the show business thing, uh, one of the things that they teach you to do is to learn how to read a script. They teach you to learn how to read a script. It's called scene analysis. They want you to be able to get in and look through the pages of the script to, to really catch the story of the script that the playwright has written down so that you can, you can bring that thing to life. Now, here's the deal. I don't know how many of you out there are actors. I don't know what the uh, theater scene is like here in Lexington. So indulge me for a second. Let me tell you a little bit about how a script works. When you are cast in a show and you open up a script, what you find is that the script tells you everything that you need to know to be the character that you've been cast to be. The script tells you how you're supposed to feel. The script tells you how you're supposed to move on stage. The script tells you how you're supposed to relate to the other characters in the story. The script tells you everything you need to know in order to be the truest character that you can be, in order to offer the the best rendition of what that character is supposed to be according to the imagination, the vision of the playwright. And one of the things they teach you is this, just memorizing your lines is not enough. The difference between what you see on Broadway and what you may find in your local high school musical is the difference between just memorizing the lines and learning how to really embody the life of that character. What they teach you is this. You have to get into the script in such a way that the script gets into you. The script must become a part of you. You must own the script. You must eat, sleep, and breathe the script so that you can be the truest character you can be and so that you as a, as a, a cast group can bring that story to life before the audience. I remember when I was cast in one of my first professional shows, we were doing these all-day rehearsals, which are exhausting, and we were having this bad rehearsal, and the director stopped us at one point in the rehearsal. He says, cut, 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 cut. Listen, you're saying all your lines, you're doing all the right blocking, you're moving around on stage the right way, but I don't believe it. I don't believe anything that you're doing up there because you're not connecting to the script. And until you connect to the script, none of us out here will care about what you're doing up there. The Lord has given us his script, the scriptures. This is God's script. And this is the story that God has cast us to play in. And in this script, we have everything that we need to know in order to be the kind of characters that God has called us to be. The the, the script tells us the way that we're supposed to process our emotions. 
The script tells us uh, the way we're supposed to move in this world. The script tells us the way we're supposed to relate to the other characters in the story. Because God has given us this script so that together we would bring his story to life in this world. So that we together would bring his story to life before a watching world. The story of his redeeming love. The story of his grace. The story of the way that he rescues people. The story of the way that he redeems this broken world. And we are called to get into the script in such a way that the script gets into us. But all too often, we are, we are not connecting with our neighbors. We're not connecting with people in this world because we're not really connecting with the heart of the script. We can memorize our lines, but, but, it, but it's, it's something more than that. We must get in and really connect at the heart level to appreciate what this story is about. You see, there's a reason why the Lord has given us his revelation in the form of story. He could have just given us a law code. But you know what? God knows that we need more than a law code. God knows that we need more than rules. We need the story and we need the hero of the story. And once we connect to that, well, then we're beginning to get the heart level connection that we need to become who we were meant to be. So tonight we are going to get into this story. We're going to engage this story because if you don't find your place in God's story, then you will find a place in some lesser story. And we must find this, this place of ours in God's story. And we're going to turn to our text this evening, and we're going to look at it through two points. We're going to talk about the dynamics of neighbor love. And the two points through which we're going to engage this text is, is this. We're going to see the situation of the world and the situation of the church. The situation of the world and the situation of the church. So let's look at our first point, the situation of the world. Now, last night we were introduced to the call of Jonah. And Jonah ran away, but now the scene shifts us and it picks up the story of Jonah as, as he winds up on a boat with a, a group, a diverse group of pagan sailors. They're mariners. And it's a diverse group of, of sailors who are on this boat with Jonah. And this scene is going to advance our understanding of neighbor love even more. These sailors don't know it, but they're about to be caught up in the drama of the prophet. They're going to get caught up into his drama. And the key piece of information that we need in order to understand this story, it, it comes in the very beginning of this section of the story. It tells us that the Lord hurled a great storm upon the sea. Now, these mariners, because of their profession, they had seen inclement weather on the sea. They, they had seen bad weather before, but we get the sense that this was no ordinary storm, that this was exceptionally terrifying. This was like no other storm that they had ever faced. And what the narrator's doing in verse 5 is advancing the narrative tension, and it's teaching us something 
about the situation of the world. I want you to look at verse 5 with me. In verse 5, the text says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. There's something that we learn about the situation of the world. Remember, this narrative is speaking to its original audience. They are looking at Jonah and they are seeing themselves in this prophet who has failed at this calling of neighbor love, of being a light to the nations. They're reading this story and God is communicating at every point. There are no wasted words. There are no wasted details in the story that we have before us. This is teaching us something about the situation of the world. And the first thing that I want you to see about the situation of the world, according to the text, is this. Our neighbors, at bottom, every one of them, they're deeply religious. They're deeply religious at bottom. And what I mean is this. Every single neighbor you have is looking to something for salvation from something. That's what it looks like for them to be religious. It doesn't mean if they swear that they're an atheist. It doesn't matter if they are committed to the sciences. Every single one of them is looking to something for salvation from something. This is a diverse international group of mariners who are turning to multiple gods for salvation from the storm. That's how we know that they're an international group of mariners. Because the way they viewed the gods back then is the way that our government works. There are, there are certain governors over certain areas. And you, you, gotta, you gotta figure out which one is, is upset. So you, you begin to sacrifice to all of them. Everyone was calling on their gods. So what it tells us is that these, these men are from all, they're from all over. This is the, this is the cross-cultural context of the boat, okay? They're all, they're all calling on their different gods, various gods they're calling on for salvation from this storm. But can't you see that this is the very situation of all of your neighbors, of your co-workers, of your classmates, of, of the people in this city? This is the situation for everyone in Lexington, The same pattern plays out every day in Lexington. People are looking to something for salvation from something. They may not believe in multiple gods like the people of the ancient Near East, but they believe in multiple functional gods. They have many replacement gods. For example, people in Lexington are looking to success for salvation from insecurities. People in Lexington are turning to money and they cry out to money for salvation from suffering and hardship and and discomfort. People in Lexington are turning to productivity and they are crying out to productivity to save them from their sense of worthlessness. That their life just doesn't matter or have any purpose. People in Lexington are turning to Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And they are crying out to Mr. or Mrs. Wright for salvation from their loneliness. By the way, if you talk to any of the married people in here, they'll tell you marriage does not solve your salvation problem. It points out your need 
for salvation. Or maybe I'm the only one in here that has had that experience. <laughs> I knew I was going to get the Presbyterians to say amen somehow. First thing we see about our neighbors, uh, the first thing we see about the situation of the world is that everyone at bottom is religious. The second thing we see in this text is that every one of our neighbors, most people in our world are, are consumed by fear. You see that in the text? The immediate occasion of fear in the text is obviously the storm. But if you take a step back, you can see how easily this translates into our culture. Now, listen, it didn't take much for me to appreciate uh, how, how overwhelmed this culture is by fear. Uh, once my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with our first child. Now, listen, we were very excited that we were going to be having our first baby. But we didn't realize how all of a sudden everyday things were all of a sudden going to pose a threat. I didn't realize that you could weaponize a coffee table. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize that everything became dangerous. Stairs became dangerous. Sharp objects became dangerous. Chairs became dangerous. TV cords became dangerous. Everything became dangerous. So much so that when we registered at Babies R Us, uh, you know how when you go in there to register, when your people want to love on you and buy you some things from your chosen store, they give you this gun, right? And you're supposed to go in there and beep, right? Like, so, so we go in there, they give my wife Vanessa, they give her the gun and she's like, oh, a dress, beep. I said, hey, babe, let me see that gun real quick. And I was like, <laughs> Outlet socket covers, boom. Baby gates, boom. I was, I was hitting everything. The corners, she doesn't bang her head and cut her head wide open on the coffee table, boom. You know, locks for the cabinets, boom. I, everything I shot was to protect from some fear. And then she finally came. Why she got that dent on her head? Why does my baby look like an alien? Her head looks like a cone. Is she going to be okay? I don't know what's going on here. We get her back. I didn't sleep a wink. She would be in the bed just making typical baby noises now. She'd be like, I'd be like, what's going on? I mean, I would awake like that because I was afraid. I didn't want her choking to death at night, you know? We'd be at the table. Vanessa, when my wife asked me to cut up the baby's food, it looked like that thing went through a, the, the, the ninja, you know? It, I, I would cut that stuff up so fine. Ain't gonna have, my baby ain't choking on my watch. I'd be a... <laughs> but Vanessa's like, what are you making, her baby pate? I was like, hey. Hey, we're not going to have any choking hazards around here. <laughs> Breaking out buttons. <laughs> I look like Benny Hanna out there. When... I was always in Heimlich mode, but it was fear. Did we are, and it's a silly way of showing you that this, the smallest things reveal how terrified we are. We live in fear all the time. We, this is what our fear sounds like. Can I get the job? Now that I have it, can I keep it? Can I do it well? Will my boss like me? Will my coworkers approve of me? How's my health? What if the doctor says it's serious? What's going to happen to my kids? 
What's happening in our country right now? We have a fear of not getting the things that we think we need. And then once we get them, we're afraid of losing them. We are consumed by fear. Our neighbors are consumed by fear. We're afraid when we can't control things. We're afraid when we don't know things. We're afraid of what other people might think of us. We are absolutely steeped in fear. But if you take a closer look at the text, I want you to see the root of the fears of these mariners. Look at the root of their fear. This group of international polytheistic mariners, they worshiped all these different gods. They're calling on all these different gods because they believe one of the gods is angry. And so they're playing liturgical bingo. Is it that God? I'm going to send a sacrifice up to that God. I'm going to pray to that God. No, it's not that one. What about this God? What about this God? They're trying to, they're mulling through because they have, they're afraid that one of the gods is angry and they have no confidence that any of the gods love them or care about them. Much less that they know any God as father. This is the root of their, their deep fear. They don't know a God who cares, a God who loves. Think about the views of God prevalent in our culture. There are two that I run into all the time. There's the grandfatherly, distant God who, you know, yeah, and it's not, he doesn't really bother you. He doesn't really get, you know, in the mix. He's there. If you get into a situation, you might call on him. He's got the long white beard. You know, it's that God. Or it's the baseball coach God. Right? He's watching what you're doing. You met, throws his hat down, kicks the dirt. You know, like... He's always agitated with you. He's always got his arms folded. Those are the typical faulty views of God that people have. And at the end of the day, what it all turns into is fear. People live in fear. Our neighbors live in fear. Lastly, what we learn here about the situation of the world is that the world is desperate Look at, the, look at the text. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The sailors are grabbing cargo from every part of the ship in order to cast it overboard, hoping that somehow, some way, they will escape with their lives. Forget about all the valuables that are sinking to the bottom of the sea. They were desperate and they just wanted to, to squeak out through this thing with their lives. Henry David Thoreau said popularly, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And so many of the people around us are desperate. They're desperate for help. They're desperate for friendship. They're desperate for security. They're, they're desperate for relief. They're desperate for affirmation. They're desperate for love. This is the situation of our neighbors. Now, here's how the story is winding up. I want you to, I want you to watch this. this the narrative is, is setting us up. This is the situation of the mariners. This is the situation of the neighbors. But then it's like you're watching a movie. This is what's happening above on the deck, okay, of the boat. But then it's like the movie goes down beneath and to the bottom of the boat. 
And what's happening while the world is, is languishing in, in fear and, and is desperate? What, the question that emerges when we see the development of the story is, where is God's prophet? Where are God's people? Where is God's church? And that brings us to the second point, the situation of the church. As you follow the the prophet Jonah in this passage, an embarrassing and shameful picture emerges. We get a picture of the pandemonium breaking out on the ship. And then we go down and we see Jonah fast asleep. First, he's running from the Ninevites. Now he's sleeping on the mariners. He is completely detached and distant from them and their problems because he's so busy trying to escape his own problems and trying to manage his own personal drama. Do you see the stinging indictment in this text? It comes in the irony. Look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The Lord's prophet is rebuked by the world's pagan. While the mariners are gripped with fear, while they're experiencing the terrifying effects of the storm, while they're calling on false gods who could not save, while they're desperately throwing items of cargo out of the boat to save their lives, God's prophet, who has an answer, is asleep. But as we observe the passivity of Jonah, the more disgusted we grow with the prophet Jonah... The haunting question comes back to you and I. What are we doing with the people on our boat? What are we doing with our neighbors, our co-workers, the poor, the immigrant, the fatherless orphans of our city? Are we asleep? Are we detached, coolly detached from them and their problems because we're so busy trying to manage our own problems and drama in our own lives? Are we too asleep? Listen, our greatest corporate problem is not that we're against the other. That's not typically our greatest corporate problem. Our greatest corporate problem is not that we're against those people. It's that we're so thoroughly for ourselves. It's that we are so focused on ourselves. We're we're completely for ourselves. And we're so completely for our kind. Our minds are so filled, so stuffed with our own issues and our own problems that we don't have any room For our neighbor's issues. We don't have any bandwidth for their problems. We don't have any room in our minds for them. We're so busy. We're exhausting ourselves. Trying to justify ourselves. For the purpose of securing and saving ourselves. Verse 9 is very touching. It's very insightful. It It should touch our hearts. It should prick us. When the mariners start interrogating Jonah and they say, 
who, they start laying out their questions to him. I want you to see something. Notice it. It's subtle, but the narrator's making a point. What is the first thing that Jonah says about himself? I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. The first thing he mentions about himself is his nationality. His, his nationalism, his ethnicity is in the way. That is the first thing in his mind. Himself and his people. Oh, and I fear the Lord. Really though? Really, Jonah? You fear the Lord? Hmm. Do you see this, American brothers and sisters, American Christians? There's a way in which our own commitments to country, an Americanized version of Christianity, can get in the way of neighbor love. We must be careful. We're no better than Jonah. His love for his country got in the way of his calling to love his neighbors. We must beware. We must beware when we prize our ethnic distinction above our identity as God's people. It's in the text. It's subtle, but like ragu, it's in there. <laughs> All right. You know what William Temple said, old school cat? William Temple said that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. That's in our constitution. It's, we are to be the only, we're really the only true organization that was designed by the Lord for the benefit of those who are not its members. To love God the world, to love our neighbors. This is the design. This is our ecclesiology for you theologues out there. This is who we are. It's our identity. It's supposed to be our identity. And I know it's become popular to think of faith and spirituality as a private thing, but the calling of the Christian is not a private thing. You see in the text that we are we are called to use our faith for public good, for the good of our neighbors. That's the rebuke of the sailor. That is essentially what the sailor says to Jonah. Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll do something to help us. Use the resources of your faith for the benefit of everyone. This is, Christianity is not a private public thing. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a private thing. It's a public thing. This is in the text. The sailor rebukes Jonah. But here's the deal. Look at this. Look at what happens when Jonah actually does that. Look at what God is able to do with an unwilling passive messenger. And we're invited to dream. What could God do with willing, active messengers? With a people that would delight to follow the Lord's voice. To be his people in the world. What might God be able to do with us? Look, here's the deal. Jonah says, all right, here's the deal. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. Because look, once the sailors figure out what has happened here, once Jonah spills the beans, they are, they are astonished. Listen to what they say to him. They, 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 say, they say, Jonah, what is this you have done? How could you do such a thing? How could you be so selfish and hard-hearted? 
So careless. How could you hate us with such cold passivity? They don't know what to do. And so Jonah says, throw me in. Throw me in and it'll quiet down for you. Now look, we don't know what Jonah's motives were. Was he suicidal? Was he feeling guilty? The text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us why Jonah has himself thrown in. But look, the purpose of this story is to lead us to one greater than Jonah. Remember, this is the point of the story. Because there was another prophet who came for an international group of pagans who were looking to other things for salvation from other things. A group of people that was steeped in fear. A group of people that was desperate for salvation. Desperate for help. And he came and he rescued us because he had a mind full of the other. He found us in our panic and the pandemonium because his mind and his heart was filled with love for us. And where would we be if it wasn't? Where would we be if he didn't love us in this way? Look, we typically step into the neighborhood with this sentiment. Here I am. But Jesus comes into the world with this sentiment. There you are. It's something completely different in the gospel. His mind and his heart is so set on us, so set on loving us and redeeming us and bringing us back to himself. We're all too familiar with walking the road to self-promotion, self-exaltation, and self-service. But the most astonishing sight on that road is a king who passes us going in the opposite direction. The exact opposite direction to self-abasement, self-giving, and self-sacrifice. The sailors in this story were uncertain about God's concern. Maybe, call on your God, maybe the God will give a thought to us. But don't you see in the gospel that it becomes certainty? It becomes assurance because in the gospel we see that God has given thought to us, that he has indeed saved us. That's the good news of God's story. The good news is that there never was a moment in all of eternity that God did not have you on his mind. There was never a moment where God was not thinking of you, plotting on your good, plotting on your redemption. Do you realize that you could sooner count the grains of sand on the beaches of this world than you could number his many mercies toward you? You will sooner drain the oceans of this world of their water than you will drain God of his love. If you had a penny for every good thing that the Lord has given you in the gospel, you would make the world bank look like a piggy bank. You are rich in Jesus Christ. His love for you is limitless. His concern for you is measureless. You cannot put a price tag on what God has done for you in the gospel. So concerned was he for you. His thoughts of you are thoughts of love. His thoughts of you are thoughts of grace. His thoughts of you are the thoughts of a father for a child, not a boss for an employee. And there's a big difference. God has been thinking of us and that is confirmed. We have certainty of that in the gospel. When Jonah confessed 
that he was responsible for this disaster that had come upon the mariners. They say this to him, what is this you have done? How could you do such a thing? How could you be so selfish and and hard-hearted? How could you hate us with, with such cold passivity? But when we hear Jesus confessing that he's responsible for our salvation, we can only turn to him and say, what is this you have done? How could you love us in such a warm way? How could you be so selfless, so compassionate, and so gracious toward us? And although Jonah's motivations for going overboard are fuzzy, the motivations of Jesus are crystal clear. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to do his Father's will. He came to bring many sons and daughters to glory. His motivations are crystal clear to glorify his Father and to gather his brothers and sisters in one family. His motives are crystal clear. Here's the deal. When it comes to neighbor love, we don't primarily have a how-to problem. We have a want-to problem. Primarily. It's not that we don't know how to. It's that we don't want to. We're so focused on our own situation. But what happens in the gospel is when you know that God has your back like this, when you know that God is for you in this way, when you know that your name is written in heaven, then you are free to get off of your own selfish concerns to take regard for the other, to love your neighbors. You don't have to scramble to secure yourself. You don't have to scramble and work yourself to death in order to prove yourself, to get someone else's approval. Because if you have the approval of God in Jesus Christ, you don't need anybody else's approval. You're validated, accepted in the beloved. And the only thing that will cure your want to problem is to see that Jesus never had a want to problem with you. It's like, it's like the man in the Gospels who said, Lord, if you're willing, he says, I'm willing, be healed. <sighs> He's willing toward us. He loves us in this way. Do you see how the Gospel speaks to the situation of our friends in this world, our neighbors in this world? They're looking to something for salvation From something. But what we see in this text is that everything else that you look to will leave you disappointed because they cannot still the storm. They cannot calm the problems with any kind of with any kind of real firepower. But what we see in this text as well is that the God of Jonah, he can. But here's the deal, and this is important. We have to be better at talking about everything that's right with Jesus than we are on everything that's wrong with the world. We're better at talking about everything that's wrong with the world than we are at talking about everything that's right with Jesus. 
Look, if you can spend more time talking about the problems of this world than the glories of Christ, you need to switch it up. Because you know why? For every one thing that is wrong with this world, there are a thousand glories in Jesus. <laughs> That's why the apostle can say something like, where sin, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. He's saying that grace outsizes sin and glory outsizes the brokenness of this world. Maybe if we get better at talking about the excellencies of Jesus Christ, better at talking about that than we are at talking about what's wrong with the world, we might actually see people drawn, compelled by beauty. The gospel speaks to our fears. The fearful situation of our neighbors. Listen, I want you to remember something. When Jesus walked this earth, you, you never see him afraid. And he saw some scary things. Jesus was on a boat, another boat with his disciples, seeing a, 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 in the midst of a scary storm like this, the disciples are, are scared. They're fishermen. They're used to being on the water. And where's Jesus? He's asleep on the boat, but for an entirely different reason. He's asleep on the boat. He gets up. Ah, peace be still. They're like, what manner of man is this that even the seas obey him? Jesus saw some scary stuff. You remember the man in the gospel of Mark, the, the, the demoniac from the Gerasenes? This man is, Jesus saw people possessed by demons. I get scared at the movies that talk about people possessed by demons. True story. I had a boss, a PCA minister. He was my boss. He made me go and see the exorcism of Emily Rose with him. Like he wouldn't let, like he's like, it's your job. You're coming with me. And we were the only two people in the theater. It was midday matinee. I was like, this is super creepy. And right at one of those scenes where the violins are going like this, he turned and went, ah! <laughs> I'm going to tell you. I, I lost about five years of sanctification in that instant right there. Because I'm about to call him everything but a child of God. Scary things. I can't even watch those kinds of movies. They make me have nightmares. I see things moving in the shadows. Jesus saw demon-possessed people in the flesh. Now, you never see Jesus afraid except one time. And that is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is staring down the weight of the wrath of God that is going to fall on him. He is so overwhelmed with the prospects of this wrath falling on him that he begins to sweat drops of blood. You know what this tells us? That the only thing truly worth fearing is the wrath of God. But the good news is that the only thing truly worth fearing is the very thing that Jesus has removed from his people. It is finished, paid for. He has satisfied the demands of God's holy, just law. And now there is no condemnation. There is no wrath for us. And therefore, there's nothing truly terrifying in this world for his people. He has drained the fear in the gospel. Now in the gospel, we have confidence in God's love. Now, 
Christ is the end of our desperation. People are desperate for friendship. But there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There's, there's no greater friend than Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. We're desperate for friendship, but in him we have one who sticks closer than a brother. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. We are desperate for affirmation, but nothing says affirmation like being accepted in union with Jesus Christ. We're desperate for love, and nothing says love like the cross and the empty tomb. The end of our desperation is the person and work of Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And here's the deal. Now, the, the, the sailors were just trying to escape with their lives and they're throwing cargo out of the boat. But now in Christ, we're loaded up with all the covenant cargo of God's love and God's faithfulness and his promises and God's future. We're loaded up. So, in light of this good news, you and I must, must take stock. Are we sleeping on the people in our boat? Or are we awake and ready to love them? Ready to announce to them the hope that is in the gospel? Let us pray that God would help us to stay awake so that we would be the kind of good news people that is needed in this bad news world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word once again. And we ask that you would teach us as we go from here, Lord. We pray that your spirit would continue the teaching. That your spirit would continue to announce the gospel to our hearts. And that you would give us a specific way to respond in love and obedience to your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray that we would follow Jesus in loving the people on our boat. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.